following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We are following in the footsteps of Jesus to start off this year. Last Sunday, we did a sermon on followership, just this idea that the first call we have as Christians is to follow Jesus. And though we talk a lot about leadership, and leadership is important in appropriate times and ways, the first and fundamental call of the Christian is to follow Jesus. So what we're doing to start off the year is going through our statement of faith. And our statement of faith is fairly long, and if you picked up notes, the whole thing is in there. We're not going to read through it this morning because we're going to be taking it section by section over the next number of weeks. The reason we want to do this is because when we follow, it matters very much who we're following and what we're following. And what a statement of faith for our church does is try to make clear this is where we're going. We're following Jesus. We're following the revelation that he's provided in his word about this world. So knowing what our starting point is, where if we follow this, we'll end up at this particular place is an important thing. So this morning, I just want to talk, generally speaking, about our statement of faith, how we've arrived at what we have, and what it's looked like through 2,000 years of church history for people to try to articulate this kind of thing. So my starting premise is this, that everybody believes something. If you're Joseph Stalin, you believe in one thing only, and that is the power of the human will. If you're Bill Nye, the science guy, there's nothing I believe in more strongly than getting young people interested in science and engineering for a better tomorrow for all of humankind. And if you're Bon Jovi, you believe it's my life, it's now or never, I'm not gonna live forever, just want to live while I'm alive. My life is like an open highway, like Frankie said, that's Sinatra. I did it my way. That's a statement of belief. And these statements, they'll form us, because if we really believe these things to be true, it's going to provide some kind of organizational principle to our lives. And we might always be consistent with what we say we believe and what we do, but our lives generally follow the trajectory of what we believe. And this is vitally important. The Bible makes this clear. I'm reading now from Psalm 115, beginning in verse 4. And the psalmist here is writing about idolatry. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them are like them, and so are all who trust in them. In other words, the thing that we trust, the thing that we worship, the thing that we believe in, there's something about the power of that that has a formative influence in our life. So as we walk into this statement of faith, we're talking about what we believe. What we believe is going to have something to do with who we worship, that is God. And we're going to focus on this because of the formative power it has to order our lives in a particular way. So here's how we get to where we are today with our church's statement of faith. We're going to talk first about creeds. So credo is a Latin word which simply means I believe. And so early on, from the time of the New Testament writers you will have particular people who try to take all of the teachings of Scripture in, in some ways and kind of distill it or condense it into statements that particularly in the early church would have been relatively easy to memorize. We see a number of them in the Bible itself. So 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, and this would have been written around 55 A.D. 
Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Very basic information. God exists. He made everything. That's why we're here. Also in 55 AD, from 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. The last sentence or two is just confirming we have witnessed. The first couple statements would have been an easy thing for a culture where they didn't necessarily have a scroll in front of them in their home to keep reading it, an easy thing to memorize. We read of Philippians, written around 62 AD. This is about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last couple sentences, just kind of a timeout to exalt Jesus. The first couple sentences, you see a basic creedal statement. Last one from the New Testament. This is 1 Timothy, written around 67 A.D. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh, that is, God in the person of Jesus, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. So the early church, they certainly would have been memorizing these kind of statements. Easy thing, starting with your kids, you get it imprinted in your mind, so it becomes this foundational belief you come back to. But as the church is growing, there becomes more and more discussion about, okay, what does it mean that Jesus was God in the flesh? What is salvation? What do we mean by sin? So you have this growing discussion as different groups of Christians from different places are wrestling with a, a greater and kind of more articulate understanding of this. So you begin to see more creeds pop up in the early church. They aren't attempting to override what Scripture says, they're almost always adding information to help clarify something or sometimes to push back against certain beliefs that were encroaching on the church and threatening to undermine the faith. So here's one of the earliest ones from a guy named Irenaeus from about 180 AD. He wrote what he called the rule of faith. In one God, the Father Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all the things that are in them, and in one Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who made known through the prophets the plan of salvation, and the coming, and the birth from a virgin, and the passion that is the week um, of his suffering leading up to his crucifixion, the resurrection from the dead, and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his future appearing from heaven in the glory of the Father to sum up all things and to raise anew all flesh of the whole human race." So a bit more detail than we read in some of the smaller creeds in the New Testament. Uh, about 50 years later, a dude named Hippolytus, which was going to be the name of our next child, 
He wrote this account of what happens in a baptismal service. When the person being baptized goes down into the water, he who baptizes him, putting his hand on him, shall say, Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the person being baptized shall say, I believe. That holding his hand on his head, he shall baptize him once. And then he shall say, Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried and rose again the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead? And when he says, I believe, he is baptized again. And again he shall say, Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the body? And the person being baptized shall say, I believe, then he is baptized a third time. Which is why when we do baptisms here, we kind of walk through a statement of faith. Are these the things that you believe? And part of what baptism is, is this public statement that is saying, I am committing in this moment to let these beliefs order my life as I follow Jesus. So, time goes on. There continues to be discussion in the church. There continues to be the need for clarification. There continues to be the need to say, mm, I think that's helpful. I think that's not helpful in understanding our faith. And so what you see in the 300s are two very important creeds that have probably shaped Christian creedal thought with everyone since then. This is the Nicene Creed in 320 and the Apostolic Creed in 390. And I'm just, I'm going to read this to you. They're very similar. If you pick up notes, you'll see some italicized words just because the Apostolic Creed adds a few things that the Nicene Creed doesn't have. This is what it says at its core. This is the one that you'll see most churches referencing one of these two when they talk about foundational creeds. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us all, for our salvation, came down from heaven, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, and made man. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, or uh, one of them says he descended into the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come in glory to judge the quick or the living and the dead, and whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in the Holy Catholic, that simply means universal, and apostolic church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body or the resurrection of the dead, and in the life everlasting in the world to come. So what I've done on this image is, if you see kind of that thick black line with an arrow, that's just going to be a visual as we go through some more things to say that it's on these creedal statements that the following things we're going to look at stand. So that's going to stay in our visual from here on. The next thing is something called confessions. This is mostly after around the 1500s. This is post-Reformation where you started to see the rise of different denominations. And what they would do if someone would become a member of their conversation is this member would have to make a confession of faith. So these particular churches that required that were called confessional churches. 
So confessions took different forms um, and for different reasons, but the bottom line is when you see denominational differences today, they're all building on those foundational creeds, but they're adding um, some understandings of particular secondary issues that they believe are vital. So this could have things to do with uh, what do you think about creation? How did God go about doing it? What happens in end times? How should you do baptism and what happens in baptism? How do you handle church discipline? Um, how does God save? What do you do with God's sovereignty? This is where you would get some Calvinist and Arminian distinctives. So these are confessional types of things. They're often associated with either particular denominations or particular places in the world. So five examples. The Augsburg Confession of 1530, this is a Lutheran confession. The Belgic Confession of Faith in 1561, Dutch Reformed. The 39 Articles in 1571, Anglican. The Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646, Presbyterian. The London Baptist Confession of 1689, Baptist as you can tell from the title. So keep in mind, they're confessions, not creeds. So once again, they're all building on foundational creeds. Those creedal things would unite them. These particular confessions were ways of saying, but I also believe there's other things in Scripture that are best understood this way. So I'm adding another line and another arrow because now we have the creeds and we have the confessions, but we have more things to add, and that is declarations and statements. These are much more recent developments. Now, this is where this could be denominations or parachurch organizations, alliances. They're, they're making a statement or a declaration. It'll often be signed by hundreds of people. Sometimes it's specific to a church or denomination. Sometimes it's very broad. And they basically say, we have issues arising in our culture. And while these issues aren't addressed in the creeds or the confessions, we think it's important that we as a church make a public statement about what we think about these particular things. So a couple examples of statements or declarations. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which I think was in the 70s. The Manhattan Declaration of Life, which covered, or I'm sorry, the Manhattan Declaration, it covered questions of the sanctity of life, of marriage, and of religious liberty. The Nashville Statement is a more recent one. That had to do with human sexuality and gender roles. The Ligonier Statement on Christology, which simply has to do with revisiting, this is what we say about Jesus. These are all relatively recent, and I just noticed I don't have dates on these. I wish I would have. But I think they're all within the last 40 to 50 years maximal, probably a number of these within the last 20 years. It simply means that as society begins to ask particular questions, or particular issues begin to arise, the church says, okay, we are going to add something else to the creeds that already exist, the confessions we have already made. We want to be clear about this particular issue. So I have one more thing to add because it's our historical stream, and that is evangelicalism. So the NAE stands for the National Association of Evangelicals. In about the 1700s is when you first hear the term evangelical show up in writing. As time went on, evangelical, evangelicalism was a fairly big tent. In the early 1900s, you see the rise of something called fundamentalism. And actually at that point, fundamentalism and evangelicalism, they kind of begin to part ways because 
they had very different approaches to how the church should be present in culture is one of the key things. There were some other differences. So they agreed on creeds. They agreed on confessional statements. They probably would have co-signed most of these statements or declarations. But there was some other differences that had a lot to do with public witness. So we are in the evangelical tradition more than we are in the fundamentalist tradition. And so the National Association of Evangelicals was founded in 1942. And since then, it has released a number of resolutions or statements or declarations. For example, they did one on the ecology in 1970. There was one on social concern in 1973, racism in 1991, torture 2007. The Manhattan Declaration I had already mentioned was one of theirs in 2009. There's one on immigration in 2009. There's one on biblical sexuality in 2017. And if you note some of these dates, it might... You might connect the dots. These are issues that are becoming hot topics within the church and within the culture. And the, the decision was it's time for us to say something official about this. So our statement of faith here at the church is designed to stand very firmly on the historical creeds. We're not a confessional church in the sense that you don't have to confess um, to become a member in the way that confessional churches would do. But we have a statement of faith that says, if you're planning to attend Church of the Living God, know that these are the things that we stand on. These are the principles that we will teach and that we will preach. And then we have two statements, which, uh, considering the nature of statements, they're recent additions. Within, I think, the last five years, we probably added these two. One has to do with image bearing, and that is specifically the issue of the sanctity of life. The other has to do with covenantal issues, and that is specifically on the nature of marriage. And these, once again, they are timely statements because they are responding to discussions that are happening in culture and in the church. So our statement of faith, a mixture of creeds with a couple statements. Um, it also leaves us room down the road, depending what the following hot issues are in culture, there's always room to add statements to our statement of faith. Now, if you picked up notes, you will see all of our statement of faith printed out here. I'm not going to read through it today because we've already read through a lot of stuff. If you didn't pick up notes, I think there's some extra copies on one of those two tables. I will post this tomorrow online so it's easy to access. This statement of faith is what we're going to go through section by section to start out 2020. Now, why does this matter? So a friend of mine recently, uh, we were having coffee and we, we were talking about life. And he used a phrase that I thought was very simple to the point of being like, duh, kind of simple. But the more I thought about it, the more I felt that it was fairly profound. He said this, I'm the kind of person who does that kind of thing. And what he meant was, this friend does counseling. And he said, I'll have conversations with people about what their week looked like. And they did all these things. And their comment will be, but that's not me. And his comment was, no, actually, you're the kind of person who does that kind of thing. And a person would be like, yeah, but it's not me. No, it is. You're the kind of person who does that kind of thing. And it was meant to bring into focus this idea that there can be at times a conflict between the way I think I am and the way I am. And it turns out at the end of the day, um, I'm the kind of person who does the kind of thing that I do. 
Now, I want to clarify a little bit, and we could talk about this in Message Plus, but I'm not talking about like victims of abuse who are forced to do things that they do not want to do. I'm not talking about that. And I'm not even trying to suggest that this is a tool where you constantly try to fix blame. I'm just saying it's a generally true observation. What we do reflects something, and that could be healthy or unhealthy, broken or whole in us. It reflects something about who we are. So I started writing out a list of the kind of person I am this week. So I'm the kind of person who does puzzles. I hate cardio. I think it's okay when I leave stuff lying around the house for others to trip over, but not for others to do the same. I'm the kind of person who teaches ethics. I'm the kind of person who pastors. I'm the kind of person who rests more than I used to. All right, so that's just a fairly basic list. Now, why am I like this? It's because I believe certain things to be true. So here's what that looks like. I believe doing a puzzle is a good use of my time. I believe lifting heavy things will be sufficient exercise. That's why I wear sandals to the gym to stop me from doing cardio if I have the urge. <laughs> I believe that my sloppiness is inconsequential and that everyone else's is a big deal. I believe ethics matter. I believe pastoring is where God wants me to be. And this last one is actually, I no longer believe that productivity is a sign of value, which gives me freedom to rest. So in other words, as I look at these things that I do, if I think hard enough, I can make a connection. I do this because I believe a particular thing. Now, I want to push back against this with every ounce of my being. Because what that means is that I have to take ownership for the things that I do. And once again, I'm, uh, there's room for us to talk about what it looks like to be victimized and how that plays out in our lives. But I'm talking generally speaking about the things that we choose to do because the implications are unsettling because what it suggests to me is that I, I might believe this thing, but if I don't do what that belief ought to lead me to, there is some other belief in my life that at least in that moment is trumping that belief. So it might even be that I, I do believe it. I just don't believe it as strongly as I did. I have some other belief that's going to overwhelm it. So here's the reality. I believe I should drop fried food altogether. I really do believe that. Um, but I don't. I really do believe that fried food is bad for my heart. So what do I believe that's overriding that enough to spoil my diet? This is the unsettling part of this to me, is that there is something else I believe when I go through the drive-thru at KFC. <laughs> Not like I used to. It's usually Vincent's fault. He wants KFC. Uh, I'm just kidding, kid. All right, so in that moment, even though I, I do believe, I think the doctor's correct. I believe that. But in that moment, something else that I believe was stronger than that belief. That unsettles me. Like, I believe there's life-altering implications for eating fried food, but I apparently, at least at times, believe something else that is more important than that. Okay, I believe God calls me to love my wife as a servant to her. I, 
I believe that. I think the Bible is clear that as a husband, I am called to live a life of sacrificial service and love to my wife, to prioritize her and honor her and protect her and care for her in, in any potential way you can think of. I am called to do that. I believe that. And yet I don't do that consistently. So what that means is, at least at times, there is something that I believe more strongly than that, at least in the moment. I believe grace is unearned. I truly do. That is, grace isn't grace if you have to earn it, right? So why do I find myself more inclined to extend grace to people that I think deserve it? even though the definition of grace is something that people don't deserve. Because I believe that about grace, but then when it comes to relationships, or maybe even when I think about how God relates to me, thinking I have to earn his grace in some fashion, when those moments arise, there is something in that moment that I believe more strongly than the word of God about the nature of grace. So that's why, I mean, I really want to push back. I tried all week to push back against this idea. I really did. I kept revisiting my notes like, I don't think I said that right. I couldn't have said that right. But I end up with what we do emerges from what we believe. Whether this is a freely chosen belief or one that's developed as a result of someone else's impact on our life, and that could be positive or negative. So there's room to talk about that kind of thing. But the reality is at the end of the day, what emerges from me is a result of what I believe. And when I have clashing beliefs, what emerges from me is the belief that I am prioritizing in the midst of that clash. And some of them can be entertaining. Um, some of them can be life-altering, and some of them are, have deep eternal significance. Here's another way of saying it, to go back to our following theme. Where we follow emerges from whom we follow. Where we follow emerges from whom we follow. So we often say, I believe X. You name it. I believe this. But if you want to find out that if that's true in any meaningful way, or if you want to find out, even if you, maybe you do believe that, but there is actually another belief that's stronger than that one, ask yourself this question. Or, or let's put it this way. Look at what you constantly do or where you constantly go, and then ask yourself what this implies you consistently believe. Then you can ask, where do you sometimes go? And what do you sometimes do? And then ask yourself, what does this mean I sometimes believe? This is why belief is important. It's crucial we believe true things about God, but we have to do better than the demons who believe and tremble and it does nothing to how they alter their lives or change their course. It doesn't lead them to faith, right? It's just a functional, I know things. But if you don't follow up on it is, I know things and I don't care about those things. So when we go through this statement of faith, one of my goals is to make sure this isn't just a dry study of these are particular facts and this is theology and that's all important, but it's got to go beyond just saying I believe this. We, we, we need to be the kind of people. God needs us to be the kind of people who are hearers of the word and then doers. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves. 
Right? So the, the statement of faith isn't just a functional walk through ideas. Part of my goal is to ask the question as we go through this, and like I've said before, I, I get really unsettled by the sermons I prepare, and I feel like it's my job to unsettle you also. So I hope this is what happens in the next month or two. Because I want us to take a hard look at our lives and say, if I believe this, it will impact the course and the order of my life. If it doesn't, then I might not believe this like I say I do. Or if I do, uh, I've got something else that has risen above it and is ordering my life instead of the truth that God has given me. So we're, we're going to go through a number of things. We'll be looking at belief about the Bible, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, sin, salvation, our eternal destiny, the church, human life, and marriage and sexuality. And like I said, my goal is that we as a congregation can think about, think about what it means to believe these things in a way that is transformative in our lives and not just in a way that says, oh, it's good to know I have a church that has this kind of statement of faith and then walk away and not have it influence it. It has to, has to influence us. So um, I, I'm excited about the next however many weeks this takes. I'm also a little unsettled by it. Because every time I, I preach through something like this, it always holds a mirror up to me, and I realize uh, this, this is part of the uh, wrestling with our faith and fighting the good fight is, is needing to take those times where we honestly self-assess before God and before others and say, do I believe like I say I believe? Is my faith working itself out in the course of my life? Am I a hearer of the word and a doer of the word? And that can be hard. But I, I want to encourage all of us to try to embrace that hardship as much as possible. At the end of a service, we'll always have Message Plus. But I would also encourage you, if we go through one of these topics and you think when you walk away, I don't think I'm applying this in my life as I ought to, find someone in the church that you trust and ask them over for a meal or out for coffee or to do a puzzle or at KFC and, and just say, I, I need you to walk with me through this because I want to be a doer, not simply a hearer. I want faith to permeate my life. I want this belief to be a life-altering belief and not just something I'm giving lip service to. That's something you can do with anybody. It doesn't have to be formal. But that would be my encouragement and our prayer that all of us, and I include myself in this, that all of us can take the next number of weeks to think honestly and, and pray and talk and meditate on what it looks like to be followers of Jesus in a way that's transformative heart, soul, mind, and strength. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.